here we are. <laughs> We're here, man, after summer break and shit. How was your summer? It was good. How about you? I can't complain, man. Uh, did a little bit of traveling here and there, and uh, I don't know, just kind of relaxed. And like nothing major, um, but lots of chill little micro adventures. Yeah. How about you? I took, I took a vacation, and I took almost all of it off. <laughs> we had, we had a board, you go to, board you go meeting. Where, like, you go where like the rich white people go on vacation, right? Like Nantucket and shit like that. Isn't that where you go? Yeah, it's, it's a funny way to put it. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I've never been there, I guess. Maybe. Yeah. But that's, a, I mean, it seems beautiful. I saw the photos. It just looks it's like Martha's a Vineyard. And, uh, it's that's Martha's Vineyard. And, uh, and it's got, um, <laughs> there's only, only, uh, uh, you have to show your W2 before you can get in there. Yeah, dude. No, and you, look, no. I think you have to drive. You have to drive a Land Rover or a vintage four by four. I think these are. This is a requirement. There's you a have to of, own brown sandals. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions about it. Most of it, is, it is actually preserved nature land. To be honest. Yeah, yeah. Like it's that. not like and, a, and look, it's, it's not like a heavy duty it's, beach community. And but it's a huge seafood vibe. Like for me, I feel like I would fucking love it, man. Like, like there's no doubt. I don't think there's it. a better place to eat seafood than the Northeast. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you know, maybe Europe, <laughs> certain places in Europe. But I think uh, it's honestly like it, it, for me, it's just our kids get to get away and spend time with their cousins. And so for, for sure. me, it's really all about family, and it's all about. You know, having some good meals, but it's it's really truly about like just getting some time to unplug. And I really like I've been bad in the past at unplugging, and this time I did a good job. And I'm I'm working nice, on it, man. And it's important, dude. It, I think that yeah. like when I did the motorcycle ride in in May, where I just disconnected for like three weeks, I really disconnected, man. And like I didn't check email, I didn't do anything. And I think your brain just needs that. Like it makes you better at the job when you get back, and not just like. It makes you more effective. I, I I think you have to unplug, and I'm glad you did it, man. And you're a dad, so you like, get that. Like you can unplug. Yeah. Do you get that in micro moments with walking your dog and like, cause I do. Like I get that. Yeah. Yeah. During get away, the day, step away. I do a couple I, of yeah. unplug exercises where I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get the fog. Yeah. Let me go outside and throw the ball with the dog for ten minutes. And that little reset just when you sit back and look at the same doc or go back to a meeting or whatever, like you just have a different mindset, man. Yeah. Um, so I totally agree. Little, little micro breaks are important. And I, I take them yeah. off. And take I was really upset yesterday. I was upset about something at work yesterday. And I, and I was like, I'm going to take a walk. And I went for a 40 minute walk around my neighborhood. I ended up having a couple conversations, but the first half of that was really just me and my thoughts. And, uh, yeah, I don't do that enough. You know, like I, I do not do that enough to to get to get settled. So, yeah, you got to do it, man. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I don't have the luxury of being, and I'm sure you don't either, of being able to take forty minute walks every day. But even a ten minute walk, man, even like right. a five minute, like I'm just gonna read a magazine article. I'm just gonna do something that has nothing to do with the shit on my screen. I think is really important, man. Um, like incredibly important for my mental psyche we have a lot of pressure on our jobs like our profession has comes with a lot of stress and like managing that i think is 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 super important for us to be yeah good stewards of our responsibilities yeah well it's uh, talk about it talk about a, a stressful job victoria our guest uh stressful Insanely. awesome 
yeah. <laughs> insanely important job that, you know, to be honest, I knew her, but I, I, I didn't know that. So I certainly I knew her before this role, but yeah. I didn't know much about this role at all. And when you hear it, Microsoft is really out there protecting governments, you know, large Secret entities. Sauce, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, like Azure, like as an environment holds some of the most important data on earth. I mean, AWS, Oracle Cloud, like these three companies throw Google in there too. Like they now house some of the most important sensitive data on earth. And like Victoria's job is to make sure nobody fucks it up. Like that's incredible responsibility. Yeah. Um, and the grace and sort of humility and kind of like casual is not the right word, but sort of like calm way that she goes about doing all of this is shockingly impressive to me. Well, she goes into her background and how she how she got that. You know, it's it's hard work. It's the experiences that we dig into with her, which are difficult, that lead her to to yeah. the her ability to do that. Pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah, totally. And she, and like for me as a Latino man, immigrant, to see a woman like completely crushing it the way she is a woman from like not my country but like sort of my kind of uh, origins right latino a latino woman just crushing it at the highest levels on some of the most sensitive work gives me fills me with tremendous pride and i feel super honored to know her and call her my friend um we were just hanging out last week and you would you'll hang out with her and the job will never come up the responsibility will never come up like She's just humble about how she goes about all of it, man. And it's awesome. We're going to have to drag this stuff out of her. You'll see. Well, we did. We had to drag it out. <laughs> uh, uh, because she's just not one to be like, look at me. I'm awesome. But she is. And we should look at her because she sets a great example for all of us. I'm glad Microsoft recognized that you know, and, yep. and put Shout her in that to role. Microsoft for yeah. knowing how to hire. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's do it. Man. Uh, here it is. I'm glad we have three grown adults here to talk about some serious right. issues. So. Victoria yeah, really Beckman, important. thanks for joining us. Um, all right. When I first met you, you were not in the role you're in now. So uh, give us like two second background, you know, on, on what you've done and because what your role now at Microsoft is pretty amazing and interesting. So we want to dig into that. But give give the audience a little preview of uh, what was before that. Uh, like my life from baby to here in two Let's seconds. Go to baby. Let's go to yeah, baby. start at baby. <laughs> Uh, I, I was a pretty tough baby. I cried a lot. I heard. Um, but, but I, I grew up, and I, I think I'm doing better these days. Well, I, I guess back to my origins. I used to be an engineer. I worked for a subsidiary of General Motors that ended up bringing me to the United States 21 years ago, and. Because of a lot of different situations in life, I ended up going to law school at Arizona State. Uh, I came originally to Arizona. And I started first at a firm doing intellectual property. I hated the firm structure. And I went to do what my passion and where my heart was, which was to be a federal public defender. And I did capital habeas uh, and capital habeas cases. And I loved it. And I thought I was going to die doing that. And then I met my now husband, who is from Ohio. <laughs> so love, I guess, made me move to Ohio. And also love. That's and a really polite way of saying Ohio is not amazing. 
<laughs> right. I, we're not even going to go into that. <laughs> but, but I ended up having to work at a firm again. And, um, and I found, and I, and I thought if I'm going to work at a firm, I better do something that I really like because I was pretty scared of going back to a firm knowing that I really didn't want that structure and found uh, because of coincidence and luck, privacy and cybersecurity, I started learning about it and made it my practice. Was at a firm until about a year and a half when uh, ago when I was contacted by a recruiter at Microsoft. And long story short, and then I'm moving to Florida. Now I'm located in Florida. And my job, so I lead the digital crimes unit for the Americas, which means the whole continent from Canada to Argentina. There, there is another one of me for Europe and the Middle East and another one of me for Asia. And uh, we're one of multiple teams, uh, Microsoft, dedicated to cybersecurity for the company. So my uh, my team is kind of composed from attorneys, analysts, investigators, engineers. And we're monitoring our systems, monitoring our cloud to look for patterns of criminal activity based on some pillars that we have. So we look for malware, ransomware, technical support fraud, business malcompromise, um, and two other ones that I'm forgetting right now. But we, if we discover some sort of pattern, then we have, we do the investigation and, and then we come up with creative ways to try to dismantle this activity. If we have the option, we go the civil route, uh, meaning doing uh, civil complaints. Most of the time, there is no the law to support that kind of complaint. So we look for administrative or criminal referrals. And then we work together with law enforcement and countries to to dismantle this activity and to do victim notification and remediation because we end up notifying and, and finding a lot of nation state sponsor attacks, uh, operations in malware and malware takedowns that go globally. So we're just kind of looking for stuff and trying to prevent attacks before they happen. That's uh, amazing. You like serious stuff, man. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, I feel like I browse the internet for that. I'm very serious. <laughs> very serious. Like, I'm very well, clearly really important in stopping <laughs> world crime. So the Americas is a big, that's a big area. And I guess my question is, digital crime doesn't come in one format, right? And so <laughs> local local norms and things. How do you keep track of all the ways in which that could happen across such a huge um, area and country differences? Yeah, it's the entire Western Hemisphere. <laughs> uh, and I keep track and, and we can cover everything thanks to the amazing team that I have. I, I have a team of amazing, smart, intelligent, you name it, people. And so I have... Um, what we call labs, which is where the analysts and investigators and threat hunters are. I have one in Redmond, Washington, one in Bogota, Colombia, and then I have attorneys distributed throughout the continent. So we 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 have a lot of support in the field through those attorneys, through outside counsel, and to agreements and partnerships with law enforcement. So normally we cooperate with with Interpol with with um, 
the Organization of American States, for example, helps us with notification of victims with local and federal police in in all the countries, Brazil, Peru, you name it. So we we couldn't do our job if it weren't because of the support that we have with the team and the great collaboration that we have with law enforcement and other agencies in the region. What happens? So here, now I'm going to start asking hard questions. If that's cool, what happens? Oh boy. Like, so you mentioned like state-sponsored activity, uh, illicit activity. The Western Hemisphere, um, I, I th- there are some states that don't get along. Um, uh, I, I, the U.S. and Venezuela come to mind. Cuba and the U.S. come to mind, and there's a bunch of others too. But um, how, you know? How does that play out when you suspect, and you don't have to pick any countries, but like you suspect like one country is conducting acts of whatever, sabotage, some type of criminal acts against another, or at least sponsoring those types of acts. Like, how does that work? How do you choose a side? Well, it kind of depends because there are certain things where we can, uh, certain countries where we can operate and we can really go into those kinds of things. So we're prevented by that. But in terms of choosing a side, if you may, uh, although I covered the Americas, we're a global team. So we end up involved. So uh, the best example is the war in Ukraine and the case in Ukraine. We started seeing um, criminal activity uh, online, cyber activity, way before the actual physical war started. So we worked with, we, uh, and in fact, I think for the first time, a private company, or at least Microsoft, took a stand and said, we're going to go with Ukraine and we're going to help them. Uh, We worked together with the government of Ukraine and started a migration of all their systems to the cloud. We started giving hours and hours for free of our our analysts and, and detention and response team for them to handle these attacks. Um, so we, that's kind of how we do it. We go in and we, and we try to help. In some instances where, uh, we don't really get to see the activity before, we just find out when the, the government is attacked. Then we also have some agreements and partnerships with them if there are customers to go in and help with remediation with uh, the forensic part of, of responses and things like that. But yes, there is some component of kind of politics and, and how we can approach and the information that we can give, not only because we're legally bound by, by laws, but we can just go to a country and say, hey, you're being attacked left and right by, you know, by X country. Um, so we work together with our government affairs team. We work together. We kind of analyze the situation, see. Sometimes we see there are neutral ways to present the information to just give the heads up without necessarily creating another conflict. And how, how like, how does that, conversation go in a company like Microsoft with respect to revenue? Meaning like all the things that you're talking about, right, are in in my view, when you talk about them, they're a little bit, they're awesome. You're there, yet they're a little bit disassociated from revenue. And having worked in companies big and small, you know, you never really escape the discussion of revenue. So how does it relate to like why the team exists and 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 what 
the kind of benefit is for the company and the customer? Well, the, the major decision in terms of the team and how the team is going to work, obviously, that's way above my, my pay grade, but it is kind of the beauty of our team. We're not a, a revenue generating team in the sense that I don't have a, a target of, you know, you have to bring in this. We are purely to protect the customers. And I think the value that we provide is not necessarily in numbers, but in the trust that our customers have on our system. So when we present, I mean, all the programs that we run, for example, we have uh, something called the Cyber Threat Intelligence Program, where we allow, um, where we sign with governments and CSERTs of different countries for them to have access to feeds of threats and vulnerabilities ahead of, ahead of other people that we get it. That's completely free. Because what we say is, you know, leave it to us to protect you. Leave it to us, the experts, to do your cybersecurity so that you can trust our products, use our products, and that that kind of translates into sales. But we don't have a number of how many sales we generated or uh, anything like that, which is great for me because I don't have that pressure. Uh, and, and it's great for the company that they decided to kind of invest in cybersecurity and provide all these teams. There's close to 10,000 experts in cybersecurity globally working in these different seven different teams, um, pre and post, uh, incident and attacks just for that, just to generate trust. But it's interesting though. It, it's, it's generating trust. Sorry, quickly, Pedro. It's, it's in generating trust, but it's also like value add when you're selling Azure at scale, right? I mean, it, it is valuable. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. if, if you want to be protected and you want to follow our best practices, likelihood is you want to migrate to the cloud. And in Latin America, for example, that's a, that's a big task that we have to provide that awareness and those best practices so that the governments know how important it is to be on the cloud. Obviously, that will translate into you know new customers buying Azure and, and those same type of things. Yep. Sorry, Pedro. Go ahead. Yeah, no problem. How does your team like? Well, two questions. Do you consider your team a legal team, or it sounds like its scope is much goes beyond like interpreting laws? So I'm interested to see like how you guys characterize the team. And then the second question is, how do you measure success? Is it by the amount of uh, threats you mitigate or the amount of threats you prevent or how how, how do you do that? So what, what what's your team and how do you decide whether you're winning or not? I don't consider it a legal team in the sense that we are within SILA, the Corporate External and Legal Affairs. Uh, so we consider a team within SILA. Yet I have people in my team that are from other teams, the engineering team, the customer security and trust team, um, because I have to have those kinds of people. I have, I manage not only attorneys, but those investigators, those threat hunters, uh, project manager, analyst. So my team has people from everywhere. <laughs> and, and we don't consider legal, because it's also, I feel like the legal, legal work, like, I don't do that much. I don't see here and review any contracts. I don't hear. Yes, there is some component of sometimes providing some comments in cybersecurity legislation, cybersecurity national strategies, but we're not in core 
filing things or, or anything like that. And then how we measure success, well, we have different ways. One, we all, the regions, we all respond to a central DCU team. And within those and the initiatives that we have, we have certain amount of malware uh, takedowns that we want to do a year, certain amount of ransomware cases of business email compromise that we want to identify, that we want to do criminal referrals, uh, those kinds of things. And uh, and then from the more regional perspective, because we also support, I, I sit under the LATAM organization, uh, we have to support engagements with customers. We have to we measure success based on what kind of legislation uh, is approved and whether or not it incorporates our our position on certain topics and best practices. So it's kind of a little bit of both. It sounds really different than being a lawyer in a law firm. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. and it sounds yes. really different than being a lawyer in a corporation. Ever in, in a lot yeah. of good ways, yeah. Like in a lot of good ways, by the way. Like I think this is like Victoria. I think you're doing some of the work now that the in-house practice is going to evolve more and more in not just in our area of law, but in all areas of laws. Like this idea that there's like a tax legal department and all they do is read tax law and give advice. Like that's just like having a mini law firm inside a corporation. And I've always been skeptical about the value of that. There is some value, but like about like whether you need 30 lawyers looking at laws, like just hire a law firm, man. Like at some point it's cheaper to hire a law firm and let them tell you than to have 30 in-house lawyers reading memos and stuff like that. I So like I see the natural progression of in-house lawyering to be more, much more hybrid in the sort of spirit of how your team is. My team is like that. Like I, I have a bunch of lawyers on my team, but we're not a pure legal team. We do all sorts of other shit. In fact, we do no legal stuff at all. Well, we do very little legal stuff at all. And it's always in coordination with our legal team, which that's all they do. Um, yeah, do you and, and think, for um, what I've seen, at least yeah. within Microsoft, it seems like all the teams are the same. I, I, I yeah. don't see any team that is like they're the attorneys and the legal, and we we're kind of very involved and are part of the team, and vice versa. And it's not that rigid structure. Yeah, I think so. And like, go to legal as an action inside a company. To me, is going to be outdated very soon. Um, there's always going to be some, like, there's always going to be a litigation function. There's going to be some things that you can't avoid, but like on the product and commercial side, like the idea that these team, these legal apparatuses exist squarely and independently outside of the orgs they support, I just feel like create some limits. I think that the traditionalist lawyers would be like, well, you need that separation for objectivity and all that stuff. But I just think that has to be done at the individual level, not at the organizational level. Like I can maintain my objectivity even if I'm inside a product org. I don't think I lose my objectivity. And if I do, I'm not good at my job. But I'm interested in both your reactions to that. I, and I think I think it has to be like that. I think it shouldn't be where the team for X product and there is legal and there are the attorneys. I think as an attorney for any product or any organization, you have to be part of the team. You have to be involved. You have to know so that you can actually provide advice that is, that is, um, that could be applied in practice. If you're kind of out there and you just know the law and you kind of come down to pontificate that you are going to provide solutions that are not 
applicable, that are not practical, that may not reflect or accommodate to the reality of, of the product or the issue. So I think I think attorneys, engineers, anyone, it, it should just be one team. And one person has maybe more expertise on this and the other, but I can't hear you. <laughs> you're on mute. You're, you muted yourself, buddy. Pedro, you muted yourself. Do you guys hear a basketball deflating? Because I didn't touch anything and I muted myself, so that's strange. Maybe there's no. a ghost in here breathing. No. Yeah, I hear, uh, okay. I hear some breathing, but... You hear, right? I, I hear, like, a deflating basketball, and all of a sudden, <laughs> the thing muted me, and my hands are right here. I didn't touch anything, so I don't know what's happening. I think there. it's uh, I think it's Tupac. <laughs> what what is happening on this podcast man uh, uh, okay let me let me throw in some amazing gems here so we have just heard no, no, but like the easy serious... stuff please <laughs> be gentle no, no no this is good this is good <laughs> listen to all the serious like nature of the work and um and obviously very important to making sure like the internet's infrastructure of which microsoft plays a big role continues to operate safely and 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 effectively Victoria, how do you balance all of this responsibility with the rest of your life? Because this is a you have a big job and it's it's important. And if you guys screw up, lots of really bad things happen all over, right? Um, how do you balance it with like your life? I mean, me and you were at a Daddy Yankee concert on Thursday, right? So maybe that's part of it. We were. We were at a Daddy Yankee concert. So so maybe you just totally disconnect. Like, how do you handle the burden of this responsibility with your family life, which you have, and with your just sort of like own mental wellness. And being like super cool and modern. And being fucking um, awesome. <laughs> well, I, number one, I don't take myself seriously. Like I just, I'm pretty goofy. I use humor as a coping mechanism and always have used it. So, so it's just kind of like... You know, I go with the flow and, and even when things that are serious happen, I'm just kind of, okay, well, did it happen? Yes. Is there anything we can do to, to change the situation? No. Okay. Well, let's move on. And, and I don't really kind of get concerned about that. I also learned early on since I represented uh, people who were on death row and I had to be present in some executions, I, I learned very early on to be very good at separating my work and my life. So I could, I could have gone to an execution and kind of switch it off and then go home and completely forget about that until I'm back at, at work. And I practice that often. I just, this is, you know, this is work and I'm fully committed. And when I'm out of here, if there is a Daddy Yankee concert, I'm going to go and enjoy it. And, you know, we'll see how I can wake up tomorrow and I can function. But just kind of living the present. Can we talk more about death row? What are you talking about? <laughs> like, what just happened? That was a pivot I, I didn't expect. I, uh, in the beginning of my career, if you were paying attention, I was in I Arizona. I remember, but I didn't realize yeah. the stakes were this high. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I worked on Capitol Hideous, uh on death row in Arizona. And so we had, unfortunately, cases where we didn't really win the appeals. And we, my time there, I went to three, four executions. Oh and it's, you know, mentally, you can't imagine the, the, the work, uh, the pressure from 
the victims, the pressure from my own family, like, what are you doing representing these people? So I, I don't know. I don't know if it's necessarily a good thing or a bad thing because then I could be, I could seem very cold, uh, but it's that I'm able to just kind of separate all emotions and do something and, and then, did you, and then, did you learn anything from working with people on death row or people that, that like, what did you learn in terms of like the relationship with that type of client, somebody that's, you know, committed an offense that, you know, has that hanging over them and and how is that been convicted of an offense? Cause you know, a lot of innocent people, I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Completely. Right. And the and the innocent people or the ones that you think might be innocent actually are the hardest because you know the system kind of stuck against you and, and yeah. you're likely not gonna be able to help and, and those are really tough. I, I learned a lot, a lot about human nature, about relationships. I mean, they become your clients and regardless of the fact that they have done heinous crimes and they have done horrific things. Uh, you learn about their upbringing and the reasons why someone may be placed in a situation in life where they may react one way or the other. And now that it provides justification, but it, it does give you a point of view as to maybe why, why this happened this way, why it didn't. It taught me to give people a second chance to not judge people Um it taught me a lot of things, a lot of things. I, I, I love that job. I learn a lot. I learn a lot from my clients. Um, it taught me a lot about myself and about resilience and about uh, how to kind of learn to grieve, to separate emotions from work. I mean, every day, every day I learn about that job. Well, How did, th- 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 this conversation, this discussion answers my previous question, which you answered with some interesting details. But like the way you handle the pressures of your current job is this is easy for you. Like That's the real answer. Like this is low stakes. <laughs> no one is oh, dying. Shit, sorry, your computers get turned off. That sucks. Like the, you were doing life and death stuff. And, and that's what that's, you know, shout out to you. Not a lot of people can handle the weight and the burden of working on such high stakes um issues and i think it sounds like from your early career experience you really really built up the like strength and i I guess armor needed to to handle high stakes work this is really impressive well thank you i guess i yeah i mean you can't imagine the uh, the kinds of things that they yell at us when we went to court when we saw the victims families and obviously i understand why um and and when we, when I was asked, like, why are you representing these people? Why are you, you know, knowing what they did? Um, but again, I'm a firm believer in second chances. And uh, you never know. There's a, there's a lot of value that a person can bring, regardless of their situation or what they have done in the past. Yeah. And also, like, they're entitled to the same due process everybody else is. Like, that is just the truth. And if we don't treat them the same way, are we're not being just? I, I, at least that's my take. So I, I totally appreciate where you're coming from and why you did that work. Um, let me ask you something else then. So, how do you see like the work you're? Do you see? I'm, I'm assuming the answer to this is yes, but it has a following, which is: Are you watching threat surface increase over time? Are you seeing like? 
criminals on the tech side become more sophisticated or, or, or is the is the like is the technology and the defenses catching up? Like, where are we on the like who's who's winning? Like, are the bad guys winning or are the good guys winning? Let me ask you that. Way. Who is winning? Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like they're winning in the sense that they're always ahead and they're always very creative. But yes, of course, we have seen an increase in the amount of attacks, in the sophistication, in how available uh, these these activities are. So, for example, in ransomware, we have seen an evolution from kind of the regular ransomware that we used to see to now ransomware operated by humans, ransomware that includes uh, attacks down the, the supply chain that have higher consequences to critical infrastructure and ransomware as a service that is super cheap. So now you can, you know, <laughs> as a job, I guess, you can have these services. Um, but, but of course, from this side, we're also evolving. We have also learned. We have also learned lessons from what we have done. So we're kind of always there, <laughs> always chasing them. But I don't know. I don't know who is winning. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that we are, but I also wouldn't say we're losing. We're kind of in an even field. Or at least I would yeah. like I mean, to think it, that. I mean, it's interesting to me because, like, the good guys, you know, the 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 go, the go, the government entities desi designed to protect people, companies trying to protect their customers and their users, um, have all the resources, right? Like, not infinite, but there are a lot of resources there. Like, Microsoft is definitely has more resources than, like, some little criminal mastermind in, you know, Eastern Europe or wherever, working from his grandma's basement, right? But it, to your point, like, some of the like ubiquitousness of like hacker tools and 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 sort of like the democratization and open source of open source technology like can empower bad guys with very little resources to have massive impacts and i think like sort of like that disproportionate array is is what sort of keeps the security challenges at really really complicated um to that well, end though, we like, have a Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was going to say, no, go we ahead, also ahead. have a lot of obstacles because it's not like, since we're the good guys, it's not like we can go and find the guy right. in the basement somewhere in it. We, we can't. So we have to obviously follow the law. We don't have jurisdiction everywhere. We have right. to have the support and, and evidence. Uh, an attribution of cyber, of cyber crimes is very difficult because... Right. You, you know, they can use a VPN and, and we can't say it, it was Pedro who was sitting there in that computer that doing this. Uh, so it's not that easy, regardless of how, of the amount of resources or intelligence that we may have. There are a lot of, uh, of, of issues that prevent us from just going and arresting somebody or dismantling. For example, we see evidence of malware, but we can't just go and dismantle, um, infrastructure or take down our customers' pages or things like that without knowing. So we have to go through a whole process. We have to apply for a court order. We have to, and in the meantime, they're gone and they're doing all kinds of other things. So how much does, and, and maybe let, let me ask it at an industry level, like how much does the industry cooperate? Like companies that sell competitive products that could have a, 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 a differentiation edge if they could say, hey, we stop more cyber crime than so-and-so or whatever. Like how much do you guys, how much does the industry collaborate, especially in the cloud? Like the big cloud providers, are you guys working together? Is there areas you do work together and areas you don't? Like, what does that look like? 
We do. There are areas in, that we work together. For example, one good example is online child exploitation. All of all of us work together. You know, Google, Amazon, Meta. We all work together to try to go against this. Uh, when it comes to to nation sponsored uh, attacks, sometimes we, you know, if they if the victim has um, has a network with Azure and has also products from Amazon, Google, we we cooperate because obviously we have the best interest of of the customer and trying to help them in mind. So. It's not like we're, you know, we're in like a love fest constantly, but when needed, we definitely, we definitely cooperate. Andy, you look so deep in thought right now. I don't even know what to do with you. Sorry, I was I, sorry. I was like, I was uh, looking, looking over at something, and I, I got. I got distracted by a shiny object. Uh, maybe it was a cyber threat. There's a cyber Squirrel. threat. No, there's I think cyber there's threat some, on your some, carpet some sort over of there, man. cyber threat. Yeah. Can I? Can I? Can we go back to one thing, Victoria, that you said at the very beginning? One of the members on your team is called like a threat hunter. That's unbelievable. Sounds like a cyborg. Like, I like really you. wish. I really wish that could be on my LinkedIn instead of like. General counsel is so boring. Go ahead. Add it. Who's going to check? <laughs> like, I think I know what that is, but what's a threat hunter? Is that? <laughs> that? <laughs> it's basically um, what we call analysts or investigators. Um, they're, uh, you know, in the network looking for certain things. We have uh, what we call threat hunters for purposes of like misinformation, yeah. and they're looking for those kinds of things. Or they're looking for patterns of, uh, let's say, the ones that work on, on malware. They're looking on patterns of specific malware, trying to do attribution and trying to see, um, you know, what, where it's coming from. With ransomware, for example, there are families and, and up to last year, Conti was a pretty active ransomware group. So we have people who knew a lot about Conti and were looking at indicators of compromise and what Conti was going to when supposedly they dismantled how it was evolving and what was so it's i guess a fancy name for an analyst investigator but really smart and and in all this serious in all this serious work that you're doing what's the funniest thing that's happened like because there's got to be like you're you're in these really every day every day there has to be something that you're like because the juxtaposition of the serious work when when something silly happens everywhere, it must be it, it must be oh. helpful helpful, right? I mean, I don't help it because I'm I'm just kind of goofy and a mess myself. So I always add uh, some component of non seriousness in that I always spill something on myself. I fall. I <laughs> made a joke when it was completely <laughs> inappropriate. So. I provide uh, a huge percentage of that silliness. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know. I didn't know it would be physical. I didn't know it would be physical comedy. I oh, guess that's the Jim Carrey of the threat hunter team. Yes, right. It's a full. You know, <laughs> I have a lot of talent for that. Um, but I, I don't know. It just it, it, a lot of things. A lot of uh, one kind of funny thing that happens is that we're a global team, and. And there is a lot of misunderstandings sometimes. Misunderstandings because of accents or because, you know, uh, English is not the native language of most of us. Um, 
And so even in emails, oh, I thought you said this, but I think it was that, or or there's something that gets tra- translated literally. And I'm like, wait, what are you trying to say? So that's kind of the most common thing, I, I think. Other than that, when it comes to like the actual work, um, I can't think of any funny business. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe. I I love what you just said about how like your team is international and then there's these like additional like textures to communication that make things more interesting, right? Because a lot of people would say it makes things more challenging, right? And that's sort of like the I like the anti-diversity perspective, right? Having a bunch of different people from different place from different places and different backgrounds and different languages creates thrash. I hear stuff like that sometimes. But the way you framed it was excellent, which is like, yeah, it, it creates a lot of unique scenarios that make the work more fun and interesting because you explain this to us in the context of what's funny and fun at work. And I love that perspective. I really do. And I applaud you for like sort of intuitively taking it, which is, of course, it's going to add grain and and just like more hue when there's lots of different people in a conversation or in on a team. But that is a beautiful thing. It creates amazing like prisms of thought and and communication. And I'm. it sounds to me like you guys are embracing it over at Microsoft. And I think that's exactly the right thing to do. Oh, yeah. Shout out. It's, it's, it's absolutely it's so much fun. And, um, you know, it happens to me all the time. But it's, I love when we're in calls, for example, and someone says something um, that I know they translated from Spanish. And then I will say, do you mean to say that? <laughs> and then we all laugh. And someone will say, well, no, in, in India, we, we say this or we have this saying. And we, um, it's fun. It's fun. I love it. I love that. So you said you came to the States when you were 20. When did you come to the How old were you? Uh, I'm 15. <laughs> well, I know. Not how old are you now? How old were no. you when you came? I would never. <laughs> I, I'm 40. I don't, I don't mind. I'm 43. And I came yeah. to the U.S. on September 11, 2001. So I was 22. On September 11, 2001. Yes. So you, you were on an airplane? You were on an airplane coming to America? Yes. And so, um, okay. Well, my this life, is an important fact. My life has been full of crazy, crazy. That stuff. is an insane <laughs> thing. So I, I graduated pretty young from uh, as an industrial engineer, and I was working for a subsidiary of General Motors in Colombia. Tell everyone where you're from. Colombia. Colombiana. Oops. Eso es muy importante. Claro. claro. Eso se sabe. Let's start there. She's a proud um, Colombian. Hundred <laughs> percent proud of it. And um, and they, at the time they had a program where they will send their engineers from Latin America, from all over the world, to learn the processes here in the U.S. And then we were supposed to go back and apply it. So they told me I didn't really want to even come to the U.S., but they said, "Oh, it's six months, whatever. We have proving grounds in Arizona." And I said, "Okay, sure." I landed in Phoenix, Arizona, and when I landed and got out of the plane. All the monitors at the airport were showing what was going on, but I didn't speak a word of English. So I thought, I know that like Americans are a little crazy, um, yeah. and this is kind of an interesting movie to be shown in an, air, in an airport. Um, and so it wasn't until I actually called my mom from a payphone back in the day, uh, one of those with a card, 
I'm an only child. And when my mom answered, I, I just meant to say, oh, I made it. And, and she's bawling. And she's like, you don't know what happened. They they don't want you there. They don't want any any foreigners. They don't. I was like, what? Um, so it started a, a very interesting uh, chronology of events. And, and that's made one of the reasons why I ended up going to law school in Arizona. It, it wasn't, none of that was planned. But yeah. here we are. Oh my goodness! Amazing! Well, what an amazing story. Um, I, I, I Andy, I it, it, like. I was becoming a U. I was supposed to become a U.S. citizen on September 11th. That was the day, the same day. So as you were arriving in America, I was supposed to swear in as an American, and that got canceled, obviously. Um, and uh, I was at the first naturalization ceremony after September 11th, which was uh-huh. ten days later, I think, or. It was September 22nd. So 11 days later, I swore in. And I was the first person sworn in at a naturalization ceremony. Isn't that cool? Wow, we got this cool, awesome. like, isn't that cool? So, like, you came to America on what is one of the darkest days. And I was supposed to become American on that same day. That did not happen. Um, what were you doing that day, Andy, now that we're here? Uh, I was, uh, I worked super late shift. I worked at ESPN. And I was up super late. And I woke up to my roommate at the time, you know, telling me his dad had called him. So I was like half asleep. We turned it on. We're watching. And then I got called into work that day. And frankly, there was nothing to do. Instead, ESPN decided to go on live to like interview like Shaq, what Shaq thinks about 9-11. It's like I I was like, I can tell you I can tell I can tell you what Shaq thinks. He thinks this is horrible. And 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 honestly, it 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 was the it was the the thing that put me over the edge to quit that job. And so I actually quit the job like a month or two later because I was like, this isn't for me. Like yeah, like covering covering the sports angle of 9-11 is a joke to me yeah yeah I two, totally two agree. things two uh kind of realizations happened to me um that day well a lot but that i can remember one of them it was kind of funny because i uh they sent jenna morris had sent this engineer and she was japanese she didn't speak much english i didn't speak a word of english and so she picked me up and ended up taking me to her house because we nobody went to work and we're watching TV and <laughs> we can't talk to each other. And, um, and so that was a pretty surreal experience. But one thing that hit me is I grew up in Colombia in the eighties and nineties. So when I saw that, I, number one, I think it was different. It was different for me the way I assimilated because I, we have lost so much sensitivity in Colombia that I was kind of like, Oh, well, something, this happens constantly where I come from. Um, and then I thought, well, it's me. Like I, I come from Colombia to kind of escape all of that. And then this is happening. Something is wrong with me. That was kind of one, my initial thought. And then two, I realized that I have become a minority overnight. We have a pretty homogeneous population in Colombia. And I never really consider myself a minority and we come here and they asked, they started asking for people to donate blood. And I remember I said, I, I wanted to donate. And they said, oh, no, no, no. You just got here. You're not like, we won't take your blood. Yeah. And I felt like, whoa, <laughs> I'm out of, out of the blue. I'm a different category wow. <laughs> of person. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah it was it was surreal well i'm impactful. glad you're here and i'm glad you stayed yeah. And America is better <laughs> for you. having you, whether they know it or not. And um, yeah. Like, and now, it, it, and like now the threat hunters. Now you're, now you're the lead now, of the threat hunter. Like, the lead threat hunter. Like, that, that's, if, that's, if that's not full circle, there, there's nothing. That yeah, is. man. We, re- yeah. we really appreciate you, you, your story and coming on and talking to us. Yeah. It's super definitely. interesting. Thanks for joining us and thanks for the work you're doing. Thanks for I mean, inviting we, me. Of course. And um, keep it up, man. I'm excited to see where your career goes. I think you're going to be the supreme threat hunter sooner. <laughs> Does that come with some sort of, of like a crown? Um, there's a crown. Crown a cape. or yeah. There's a cape. Okay. There's a big cape. I think the uh, I think the the crown should have night vision goggles that come with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Excuse me. It should have Oculus uh, Meta Quest headset. Is what it should be. Perfect. We can end on that note. But like I will say, it, like your field is about to explode. I think in a good way, like grow, because um because this metaverse space and Microsoft's in the mix on all this stuff as well. Like. It's just going to create so much attack surface um, and so much threat surface that you're going to be busy and you're going to retire having left a lot of things undone because I think we're headed for a really challenging, interesting future. Nice. Thank you. And I hope that there is this huge field of opportunities. I hope that the majority of those opportunities are being filled by minorities, women, Latinas. Yes. Uh, So there, there is room and opportunities for everybody. Thank you for being a strong Latin woman in our field. We need more. We need a lot more.